So let's turn to Genesis 45. We are now coming to the scene where Joseph makes himself known to his brothers. It's, it's one of the high watermarks and certainly the climax in the Joseph cycle. Do you recall why Joseph, as we read here at the beginning of the chapter, can no longer restrain himself, but he makes himself known, and um, the rest is history. Why does he not continue this cat-and-mouse game that he has been playing with his brothers in three installments so far, and now here the fourth installment? Why does he make himself known? The answer is... The two people that the brothers had so hurt in the past, first their younger brother, which used to be Joseph, and then their father. These two, the brothers show now, um, are being considered and seen in a different light. They have shown that they have repented of their sin. They are ready to change their course of life. And they do no longer give up their younger brother, although the opportunity presents itself to them. They refuse to do so, even at their own cost. That is very different from how Joseph was sold into Egypt, wasn't it? And then with their father, how they have hurt him, how they have broken his heart by lying to him and making it look as though Joseph was dead. In this last prayer or this this appeal of Judah, Judah makes their father and Canaan the main point of his appeal to this ruler of Egypt whom he still does not recognize And he says to him, our father is going to fall down dead if we do not bring our youngest brother with us. And so Joseph knows that they are not going to go down the same road a second time. They will not do what they have done in the past. They really have repented and God has worked in their hearts. And because when you see the work of God in the hearts of people, it is so beautiful, it is so refreshing and so comforting, Joseph breaks down and makes himself known. So when Joseph could not control himself before before all those who stood before him, he cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I'm your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me, for God sent me before you. To preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it wasn't you who sent me here, but God. 
He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my glory in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave changes of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt, and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. <laughs> Did he know his brothers? Well, imagine you had to teach a group of little children that God has a heart. How would you do it? Would you give them a red rubber heart to squeeze and to hold and written on it the word mercy? Then you could use the rubber heart to explain to the kids what it means that God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You could say, God's heart beats for you, and it's not a cold heart, not a distant heart. It's a warm heart. Or maybe you would prefer the timeless tale of the prodigal son to illustrate that God has a merciful heart that receives sinners with no questions asked, with full reinstatement, full rights, Full reconciliation. Or finally, you could refer to the Joseph story and this text in particular, arguing how the heart of Joseph 
is revealed or reveals, I should say, the heart of God. Well, this is the climax of the cycle. And this is the moment of Joseph making himself known to his brothers. You know that with one wave of the hand, he could wipe them out. He could make them pay for all the evil that they have done. And he could send them to their death or to prison. It would be no less than they deserved. They have handsomely earned their punishment at the hands of Joseph. But that is not Joseph's way because it isn't God's way. When God makes himself known to you, it is not for the purpose of punishing you, but for the purpose of winning you, winning your heart, and for the purpose of full reconciliation, that you and God can see eye to eye, heart to heart, and have peace like you have never known. And when God makes himself known to you, it does not spell ruin or death or imprisonment. When God makes himself known, it spells life. Even as Jesus said in his prayer of John 17, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The brothers are about to get to know God and Joseph, whom he has sent before them, as Joseph says twice in verse 7 and then in verse 8. And this making known also spells life, although not eternal life, arguably, but life, not death for them, not ruin, not imprisonment. And there are three lessons about God that accrue from this scene with the concluding caution that I drew attention to in the reading. The three lessons are the graciousness of God's heart in forgiveness, in love, and care. Second, the total control of God in bringing good through or out of evil. And number three, the mission of God that completes his graciousness. Now, God is gracious and merciful. He has a gracious heart, and you see it in the forgiveness that Joseph's brothers receive for their crimes. Notice how Joseph pleads with his trembling brothers. Verse 5, don't be distressed. Do not be angry with yourselves because you sold me to Egypt. They are distressed and probably also angry with themselves, saying to themselves, why did we have to do this? Why? It was so foolish. It was so unnecessary. What business did we have doing what we did? But they are probably more scared than they are angry with themselves. For their guilt has been established in the previous interactions with Joseph. As we have seen over the weeks, they have been found out. And they know it. They know that God is behind all of this. And they have good reason to be afraid. 
Because as they face the face of Joseph, they might as well stand before the face of God. First John 4.18 says, fear implies punishment, and so it does here. Their fear implies the punishment that they deserve. Yeah, they are at Joseph's mercy. But rather than to apply or to play his card of power, it is his to play. He makes himself vulnerable and naked. And he weeps over his brothers because he takes pity on them and he loves them because he has a gracious heart. He has no interest in vengeance. He has no interest in keeping a score. He wants reconciliation. He has a gracious heart like God. Do you remember the father of the prodigal son? How he ran to meet his son when he saw him at a distance. A father who rejoices more over one sinner who repents. And Joseph had seen firsthand that they had repented in the two critical areas that he had targeted in this series of tests that he set up for them. The Father in heaven rejoices more over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who have no need to repent. And sometimes I wish, I think that you wish, that God would brainwash us. Brainwash us people so as to never again forget that we breathe the atmosphere of God's graciousness without which we suffocate instantly. We would be less inclined to bitterness. We would be less inclined to refuse to forgive others, being quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. God is slow to anger. And God always prefers forgiveness over judgment. He has tailor-made the cross of his son as a pristine gift of reconciliation that brings heaven and earth together. A gift carefully weighted, carefully measured, tested and tried by God's inflexible justice. And then a cross blessed by God's name. And finally, made perfect, made perfect by his mercy, by his grace. And so it comes to you in the gospel of his son. It comes to you as a gift from heaven, a gift of his gracious love so that you can become yourself. You can become the person you are meant to be and you can find fullness of life in him. Then again, his graciousness is also seen in his love and care, not only in his forgiveness, in preserving you. Joseph tells his brothers that they do not need to be afraid, but also that God's purpose in all was to keep alive a remnant on earth, verse 7. His love does not only show in forgiveness, but it goes on. It goes further 
and is continuing care throughout the years of your life until your journey is completed. As it shows in Joseph's care for his brothers, preserving them and his people in time of famine that will go on for another five years. And as we know, he will preserve and bless them beyond this. One of the most humbling, one of the most hauntingly beautiful words in this regard comes to us from Isaiah 46, verse 3. One of my favorite scriptures. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made, and I will carry, and I will save. Not enough? What more can he say to you? To assure you of his unwavering purpose and of his care. Friedrich Taub was a, a missionary to China who died at the tender age of 33. He died in a period at the close of the 19th century when um, there was great turmoil and unrest and political um, um, maneuvering and scheming in the land of China. Only one word survived him. He says, how he carries me, I know not. How he brightens the night for me, I know not. But I do know that I never lack the light to take one more step with him. I never lack the light to take one more step with him. One more step. And then another. And then a third. And then a fourth. This is the mystery and this is the truth. This is the wonder of the preservation grasped through faith in God's promise to be present with us, though we may not feel it. And this is the wonder of his preservation that carries us, even though it works through our efforts and our struggles. He carries. The 2018 Netflix feature, Push, how many of you have seen it? Not one. Well, I'm the only one to tell you about it then. Push, push documents how Grant Corgan, Grant Corgan, after a snowmobile accident, paralyzed him, became the first man with a spinal cord injury to push, and quite literally push himself to the South Pole. Sitting on a specially manufactured sled. Corgan used only his arms to haul himself across the most unforgiving terrain known to man. And whenever he felt he could go no further, and there were many, many such moments, he would speak to himself. He would say, Grand Corgan. Can you give me 10 more feet? And Grant Corgan would say, yes, I can do 10. And so he would push himself for another 10 feet. After that, he would say, 
grand. How about another 10? Can you give me 10 more? Sure, I can give you 10 more. <laughs> and so he pushed himself another 10 feet. And again, and again, and again, until he reached the pole. He does not know how. And sometimes you feel that this is the end of the rope. That's how it feels. Nobody can change that for you. That's how you feel. That's reality for you. Sometimes we feel this is the end of the rope, but grace carries us another step. And then another. And then another. And so on. The second lesson about God arising from this scene is closely linked. It is his total control in bringing good out of evil. This is one of those things in which God alone and nobody else is beside him. God has the monopoly in bringing good out of evil. Now, this is, of course, um, nothing new for you who are a trained Christian, trained in Christian doctrine. You've heard this before. God brings good out of evil. He brings life out of death. We've heard this before. But do you remember the story of how King David had to vacate Jerusalem on account of the insurrection of his son, Absalom? Absalom won the hearts of Israel through flattery as they waited for them to come to him. And he asked them, well, what is your grievance? And they said, it is this and that. And he said, you know, if I was king, you watch. I'd give you justice. And so he stole the hearts of the children of Israel. David had to flee from Jerusalem. And he came down from the Mount of Olives and headed towards the Jordan Valley. When an angry man, a bitter man named Shimei or Shimei, crossed his path, casting stones at him <laughs> and saying, you get out of here, get out, you man of blood, you worthless fellow. All that you did to Saul is now being avenged by Absalom. And the mighty warriors of David at his side, they were ready to take off his head. And David said, let him curse me. God allows it. Who knows whether God will not requite this. And this kind of composure is possible only when you are certain, certain, that God can turn every curse into blessing. Even the worst case scenario, for those who love God, all things work for good. And so similar, Joseph says, you sold me into Egypt, but God but God sent me before you to preserve life, for the famine will last five more years. And in chapter 50, verse 20, we read along the same lines, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as it is today. Now this is the classic statement of providential control. And this biblical realism 
I hope you can see it, to, to see clearly the two aspects in every event. On the one hand, human sin. The blind working of a, of a sinful human nature. Scheming, working, trying to get ahead. And on the other, the perfect will of God. And to fix attention like Joseph does and has learned through his affliction to fix attention on the latter as alone being consequential. This truth is so supremely exemplified in Jesus in Gethsemane where Jesus accepted his betrayal and the cup that he was to drink as the will of the Father. And this rhetoric, not you, but God, not you, but God, you encounter at several points in the scripture. So, for example, in John chapter 15, verse 16, where Jesus says to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you so that you may go and bear much fruit and so that your fruit may remain. And note that what God has done here in the story Sending Joseph ahead of them stands completely independent of the brothers' repentance. It does not hinge on their repentance, although it leads them to repentance. Because God brings good out of evil. It's hard for us postmodern people, as it was hard for Joseph's brothers to believe that God is at work even in the dark and destructive moments of life. And one of the great obstacles to faith is that no matter how hard you try, try as hard as you will, it simply isn't possible. It's not possible to identify grace and to identify and to see redemption in so many of our human experiences. It isn't possible. It's not given to us to see. And it is easy. And some would say it's compelling, if you ask me, compelling to conclude that God is not present in human suffering and in defeat and in all those things that we do not fathom, we do not understand. But Joseph leads us to a different conclusion, doesn't he? Which is that, in spite of the awful tragedies from which God seems absent, that's how it feels, the king of creation is your caring friend. And he will ultimately have a friend's way. Isn't that something? He is your caring friend, and he will finally have a friend's way. So this is a great paradigm of the grace of God and what he can do in a human life. Transform a curse into blessing. God is in total control. Why did we ever doubt how could we ever doubt? He is in total control. And not only this, as we said, 
Joseph reveals the heart of God. The one who has every reason and right to reject a wayward human family, a human race, but who instead loves them even to the point of his own participation in our suffering. In fact, not only participation, that's not quite correct. Of God, you would have to say that he assumes, he absorbs our suffering. So there is graciousness to will, and then there is control to work for our good. And together, graciousness and control, graciousness and power don't fail, can't fail. And third now, there is also a mission that completes his graciousness. Verse 13, you must tell my father, tell my father of all my glory in Egypt and of all that you have seen, hurry and bring my father down here. Now granted, it's a very limited mission. Bring daddy, and by implication, the rest of the clan, bring them down here. But a mission it is, nonetheless. And the brothers are given the message of Joseph's glory in a faraway kingdom. To bring to their people. And so to bring them to that faraway kingdom, to Egypt. So as to live and not to die. So as to thrive and prosper and not to perish and to come to poverty. The bounty of Joseph in forgiving in his graciousness and in his care, it must also be shared with more than his 11 brothers. And Joseph also gives them some of the riches of Egypt. In fact, his decision is then confirmed by the council of Pharaoh himself. So there is a second word, a confirmation that this is how it must be. He gives them some of the riches of Egypt to confirm the call. In essence, what I see here is the call of our gospel. A word of Christ's victory, a word of Christ's glory, and of the glory of the coming kingdom. Confirmed and empowered by the Holy Spirit who has been sent from heaven as a down payment, as a piece, if you will, of evidence. Down payment, a guarantee of the purchased inheritance. The church has been in building for over 2,000 years now, and an end is not in sight. We do not know when it will end. But we are participating in the mission today because Jesus is working with us. Jesus is sending us, and he is working with us to make disciples of all nations and to bring them, bring them like Joseph's clan Bring them to God through the gospel call. And what God has begun will one day be completed in marvelous fashion. For now it looks like a huge building completely veiled by scaffolds on every side. 
And as you stand in front of the building, you can hear the hammers and the nail guns and all the tools and the back and forth and the working of the construction workers. You can hear all of it, but you have no idea what the finished product will look like. One day, though, the scaffolds will fall like curtains and reveal the splendor and glory of this work that God is working in our midst. And this is so intriguing for me because when I look at you, when you look at me, you don't see much glory. We can see Christ in each other, but it is so pedestrian. It is so weak and often compromised. What we will be has not yet been revealed, but we do know that when he appears, we will be like him. Well, our text closes with a final caution. Do not quarrel on the way. Yes, it's almost humorous, isn't it? Don't quarrel on the way. Joseph's parting instruction is so realistic. Because the crime of his brothers is about to be revealed to their daddy. He never heard this tale. He doesn't know what's behind the scenes. It is about to be revealed to their dad. And therefore mutual accusations are likely to proliferate, perhaps with gradations, you know, assigning blame to you this much and to you that much. This is likely to occur, and this will endanger the mission. It will call into question the quest. And division is always the threat of a common mission. And this is why our enemy never tires to employ division as often as he can, even if it gets old. He still does it. The mission Joseph gave his brothers was clear and simple. Bring them home. But the road, long. And so many things could go wrong. So many things could happen on the way. And so it is with our mission as the church of Jesus Christ. However, the greatest challenge arises from our own weakness. Today, I'm more convinced than ever that while no one can prevent attacks on the unity of the Spirit, no one can prevent attacks on the unity of the body of Christ They will occur. The church has been given all that she needs to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It is not in us. We are not sufficient for this, but God is. And he has given us the tools. We must put to use the tools that are ours to resolve every conflict and most of all, Beware of selfish interests. Beware of selfish ambitions which are contrary to the hope of Christ. As though Jesus said, don't you quarrel on the way. Well, this passage takes you to a great height from which to see God's work in totality. Meanwhile, 
the sentence, God is not yet finished, comes to mind when you read many other biblical texts. It will come to mind tomorrow when you go back to work. It will come to mind tonight in your home and throughout the next week. And as a matter of fact, God is not yet finished is the thought that you will have throughout your life. And that God is not yet finished gives me hope. For I don't need to understand all. And I don't need to accomplish everything today. It's okay if I don't. And God not being finished gives me patience too because already God knows what kind of person he is making me to be. So also you. You can be patient as God is whose work will surely be finished. And God not being finished yet gives me comfort and encouragement for our church. Not all that shines here is gold. And small things, small things that tend to be overlooked or maybe even despised, they may have great significance, only we do not see it. But in the word of James 5.11 that we also quoted this morning, Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and gracious. God's heart always beats for you and it's a warm heart, not a cold or distant one. And his purposes will ripen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this beautiful scene that reveals the heart of our God in Joseph. We have life by knowing you. And we have come to know you. We have come to know your heart because we have seen Jesus whom you have sent. Jesus who lives in us by faith. Jesus who speaks and promises. Jesus whose spirit guides and empowers us. Jesus who is coming again to finish the work that remains. Today, Father, the mission goes on. We are to bring the people that you have called. We are to be a witness, bear the testimony of Jesus, and we pray that you would give us courage and strength and that in doing these things together as your people, there may be no quarreling. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.